welcome to this podcast of Thornside Stories, a mix of sun and cloud, a comic novel in stories, written and narrated for you by me, Christopher Cameron. This weekly 20-episode podcast series will contain all the text of the published book, presented one chapter a week. And welcome to Thornside. Chapter 4 O Magnum Mysterium If Christmas did not fall in December, declared local author Lindsay Sterling, author of The Feathered Bone, it would have been necessary to move it there. November, he had written in the Thornside News, offers nothing but the sleet-soaked panorama of a leafless, lifeless world. January waits to enclose the countryside in a suitcase of ice. The other winter months are worse. With its promise of a colorful holiday season, December stands blessedly among them, like a bright red Tim Hortons surrounded by car dealerships and body shops on a gray stretch of highway. For the St. Ninian's Parish, preparing and presenting the annual Christmas pageant was a proven way to keep everybody at the church occupied and optimistic during the dead period between the false hope-generating Christmas bazaar which always made the kids think Santa's arrival was just around the corner, even though it was still only the beginning of November, and actual Christmas. Every kid vowed to hate the bazaar after this unkind tease, but by the next year they grew excited again as the day for the event approached. The bazaar had been named the Winterberry Fair several years earlier, after a search for a better name than the Christmas Bazaar. Noby Bartlett had heard from a friend at a church in Toronto that their event was called the Hollyberry Fair, which she thought was a delightful name. Someone else on the organizing committee pointed out that no matter what nonsense they thought in the city, Holly was actually called Winterberry in this part of the country, and everyone agreed that this was a more appropriate, more botanically accurate name than Hollyberry. The clincher was when someone else pointed out that Holly Berry would remind people of that actress who played the Bond girl, which the city people must not have been aware of, and so the Winterberry Fair it became. In any case, as soon as the Winterberry Fair was cleared away, preparations for the Christmas pageant, still and always called the Christmas pageant, got underway. The pageant was run by the church's curate, Marcy Cates, who had inherited it from her predecessor several years before. The event had been going on for so long that there was little left to do creatively. Archdeacon Micklethwaite once pointed out that the original stage directions had been written 2,000 years ago. It was just a matter of marshalling the church's many resources. Marcy had a loud voice and a direct manner, both desirable for marshalling, and she'd added her own imprint to the presentation by writing some new text. The evening was a dramatization of the Nine Lessons and Carols format, made famous by King's College, Cambridge, and used in so many churches. The choir performed their favorite Christmas pieces between pantomimed nativity scenes, and at regular intervals the congregation got to sing a carol. Unlike King's College, however, the lesson-carol mix at St. Ninian's did not total nine. It was felt that the congregation would be satisfied with five, and probably restless with more. So five lessons it was. Five and a half, if you counted Father Bannon's welcome 
and extensive thanks to the Anglican Church women, the volunteers, the choir, and the retired men's snow-shoveling squad, known as the Cardiac Crew. The lore of the St. Ninian's Christmas pageant stretched deep into history and had permeated the wood, stone, and fabric of the church like ancient incense. No event in the church's calendar was anticipated more. Costumes were unpacked, lights were tested, sets were dusted off, music and drama were rehearsed for weeks ahead. Stories of past productions were told and retold over the years, embellishments always being the rule rather than the exception. By far the most famous tale was over twenty years old. It was a story of many parts, which didn't all fit neatly together. But the best stories seldom do, Archdeacon Micklethwaite used to say. It happened in 1999. The first big snowfall of winter began on the morning of the Christmas pageant. At first, just a few flakes fluttered wetly down from the sky. But it wasn't long before the flurries thickened, and soon it seemed the air was more snow than not. The snow collected until it covered everything, the hills, the trees, the sidewalks and lawns, and the nativity scene outside the church doors. Around noon, just as people were beginning to worry that it might turn into a real blizzard and force the cancellation of the pageant, everything tapered off, leaving the town muffled under a deep but manageable duvet of white. There was a collective sigh of relief. People were rattled enough with the historic millennial New Year just a few weeks off. They didn't need a crippling snowstorm, too. By early evening, most of the roads were plowed and sanded, and instead of silent snowflakes, the air was full of the sound of snowblowers in driveways, and people calling to one another that it was beginning to look a lot like Christmas. In the blue gloom of twilight, one of the fathers in the congregation, Cam Campbell, was driving his ten-year-old daughter Sarah into town from their place out on Valley Road. She had to be at the church early because she was an angel in the pageant. The main angel, she'd been telling everyone. Without warning, their car skidded into the ditch at the side of the road. The two were unhurt, but the rear end of the car was buried. There was no way it was going anywhere without a tow. Of course, there was no one else out on the road at that hour. Everyone in the area was home eating supper or else at the church getting ready for the pageant. In future years, it would be easy for Cam just to call his wife, or even Hank Blockman and his tow truck. But cell phones were not in such widespread use at the end of the 20th century, and Cam had not thought to bring his along. The trip was just supposed to be a ten-minute drive to drop his daughter off. He was then going to head back home and pick up his wife and son, so they could get to the church by seven for the pageant itself. Burns wrote something about the best-laid schemes, thought Cam, a high school English teacher. Well, here we are. It was not a great distance to the church, and it would have been an easy walk if not for one thing. Sarah's wheelchair lay neatly folded in the back seat of the car, and there was no way it would go through the snow. She'd been paralyzed from the waist down in a tobogganing accident a few years before. It was to be a special evening. Everyone in the pageant had pulled together to make Sarah's debut as the Angel Gabriel a success, as she announced the upcoming birth to Mary, placated a puzzled Joseph, and presided over the singing choirs of angels. The appropriate ramps and approaches were built and installed, and Sarah looked luminous in her pure white robe and shiny wings. Cam didn't think twice about what he had to do. He scooped Sarah up in his arms and started carrying her to the church, the way a bridegroom carries his bride. 
Under the dark winter solstice sky, he carried her down Croucher Road, along the fourth line, into town, and up the hill to the church. They nearly made it on time, too, and Cam even swore later that his daughter grew lighter to carry as they got closer to the church. Someone drove back and fetched Sarah's wheelchair and the sliding board she used to get in and out of it, and the pageant was about fifteen minutes late getting started. But nobody minded. The young organist, Ashley Buff, had entertained the waiting congregation with an impromptu carol sing. The devotion and perseverance shown by the snowbound father and daughter touched and impressed everyone. The strange sidebar to the story was that, in the middle of the presentation, while Sarah, as the angel Gabriel, was announcing the upcoming birth to Mary, two boys, about twelve years old, were out in the church parking lot, hatching what they decided was the best plan ever. One of them had managed to get hold of some super-bang firecrackers, the loudest kind, and they were plotting to sneak into the church through the side door, crawl into the chancel in the dark, and toss them under the manger during the scene with the shepherds and the three kings. It was going to be so cool. The two were standing in the shelter of a bush at the side door stairs. The more dominant of the boys had grabbed the other Zippo lighter, which they were going to use to light the firecrackers, and was playing with it. He was flicking it on and off to make sure it worked, holding it close under his jacket, trying to keep it out of the wind while he fingered the precious explosives in his pocket. For a reason he would never know, he glanced up at that moment and saw a white-shrouded figure standing at the top of the stairs, looking down at them silently. "'What the f—' he said, transfixed. "'That's Sarah Campbell!' gasped the other boy, although they both knew it couldn't be. For one thing, she was standing. Also, she was supposed to be inside in the show. Just as they were pondering these things and staring dumbly, one of the firecrackers caught the lighter's flame and exploded. Their night took a disastrous turn. Ham Stiff, the verger, and a few men who were out on the front steps having a smoke heard a loud bang and a shriek of pain and ran to see what the disturbance was. The rest of the congregation was listening to the organ stylings of Ashley Buff, who had opened the swell box to herald the appearance of the angel Gabriel before Mary just as the firecracker went off. The whole story was more or less put together, including a somewhat garbled semi-confession from one of the boys, but no one ever figured out who had been standing on the side steps of the church that December night. Sarah Campbell eventually left town to become a well-known TV news anchor, and Cam grew to be a bit of a local celebrity for stringing hundreds of lights into the huge old pine tree in front of his house every year. Some people decided that the vision was some kind of guardian angel, tasked with protecting the pageant from misfortune and calamity. They called her the Snow Angel. And for the most part, the angel did her job well. Although Christmas pageants are the sources of all the best disaster stories at churches, St. Ninians had blessedly avoided most of the common ones. Shepherds vomiting in the stable, nervously fainting Virgin Marys, angels pummeling one another in fistfights. Much of the drama was like the firecracker incident, unseen by the audience and therefore not noted. In this way, the event's book of lore comprised both published and secret pages. There were some near misses. The previous year, the Mary and Joseph were two high school kids who had been going out together until just before the pageant, when there was a ferocious breakup. By showtime, they weren't speaking. In a way, this didn't matter, since the presentation was a pantomime. Nonetheless, tensions ran high in the stable that night. 
the hostility between the holy couple might have been less severe if a toddler in the front row had not recognized her favorite animal in the stable, which also happened to be one of her very first words. As Joseph stared daggers at the desperately smiling Mary, 14-month-old Layla Carson began pointing toward the manger and addressing the congregation with her word. Cow! The word rang clear and loud like a Christmas bell, and for a moment it was the focus of the nativity story. Cow! Heads turned and there were a few muffled chuckles. Cow! 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 The Virgin Mary glared into the congregation. She knew what they were all thinking. All right, so she needed to lose a few pounds. Why, Penny Soby, she thought. Skinny little bitch, of all people to dump me for. Cow, said Layla. Mary's hands tightened on the neck of the baby Jesus, and Joseph made a move to wrestle it from her before she decapitated it. He failed. The holy head popped off, bounced once on the stable floor, and started rolling toward the chancel steps. Joseph, a star of the high school's soccer team, managed to sandal-strap kick it smoothly under the manger, while Mary stared at her baby's swaddled torso. Very few in the congregation noticed this happening. They were now too busy looking around to see who the cute toddler was. One seven-year-old boy in a lamb costume did catch sight of the rolling head and began to cackle Madame Defarge-like until he was kicked in the shin by the back half of an ox. But these were minor speed bumps, and to be expected. The Snow Angel always fulfilled her mission, although sometimes she worked in mysterious ways. This year was on track to be completely disaster-free, until Magnus Van Fleet, who was playing John the Baptist, threw a monkey wrench in the plans during the last week of rehearsals. John the Baptist doesn't really have a part in the original Christmas story, except to be born and then to be referred to in the final lesson but Marcy Cates had written a script adaptation that expanded this role to make John the host and narrator of the whole evening. The script consisted of John reading most of St. Luke's account of the Christmas story, along with some commentary as the various characters mimed their parts. Magnus Van Fleet was known for his over-the-top style, which helped keep people interested and awake. When he read Mary's Magnificat and declaimed the words, And holy is his name. People in the pews shivered and considered increasing their weekly offerings to the collection plate. As a prop, John the Baptist got to carry around a large staff as he narrated. The staff had been donated to the pageant by Archdeacon Micklethwaite. The story was that it had belonged to Micklethwaite back when he was a boy scout, which everybody imagined must have been about a hundred years ago. It looked sturdy enough to club a moose to death, on the Sunday afternoon, one week before the pageant, the cast, crew, and choir were making their way through the logistics of the show. Marcy and the lighting director, Tim Fitch, who worked in the lamp department of Barnett's Furniture, sat at a desk in the midst of the pews. Ashley Buff was at the organ, and the choir were installed in the stalls. The pageant was the most cherished of all their choral duties. They loved all the music, and most of them could sing it in their sleep. Some did. The run-through rehearsal began. Magnus made his first entrance and looked straight out toward where the audience would be. He opened and closed his mouth twice before he spoke his first line, and then his eyes glazed and his head bobbed up and down several times. There was a long pause. Someone cleared their throat. "'And it came to pass,' hissed Marcy. "'Do you mind?' burst out Magnus. 
I am performing the traditional Aramaic silent greeting by a holy man to a crowd of followers. No, he's not, said Marcy to Tim Fitch, a little too loudly. He forgot his line again. I heard that, and if my John isn't good enough for you, then, then I will take him home and you can find someone else. Magnus dropped his staff, which fell to the floor with a clatter, and walked out of the chancel. And with that, the pageant was without a John the Baptist. We need a new John, said Marcy to the choir after a hastily called breaks. Are the toilets backed up again? asked Noby Bartlett. Marcy tried again. Magnus, our John the Baptist, has jumped ship. I need someone who can fill in on very short notice. There was silence as all the men looked down and began to study their carol books. I could do it, said a voice not everyone recognized. It was the new choir member, Lucas Darnell. Hmm, yes, said Ashley from behind the organ, but I need you in the bass section. I'm pretty sure the guys can do just fine without me, said Lucas. The guys beamed proudly. It's all familiar music, and there's a more urgent need for a narrator, don't you think? His logic, his confidence, and his bearing left no one in doubt. There's no need to memorize the script this late in the game, said Marcy, handing a copy to him. You can carry it around with you. You've worked such a miracle writing this, replied Lucas, that it practically speaks itself. Marcy glowed. Let's just see how it goes. Shall we try it once? Lucas picked up the staff of John the Baptist, walked elegantly to the top of the chancel steps, and took the stage. Blessings on you, friends, he began. I bring you good tidings of great joy. They call me John, John the Baptist. God, what a voice, whispered Cheryl Blanford over her shoulder to Barbara Keating. I'll call him anything he wants me to. She had acquired a beatific expression. It was hard to tell whether she was getting in the mood for her upcoming solo or was simply allowing Lucas's voice to wash over her. Barbara did not offer an opinion. It was true, his voice was nothing short of thrilling, but she was still trying to figure this man out. Was he attractive or repellent, or both at once? was definitely smart, competent, and confident, possibly drifting just across that faint thin line that separates confidence from arrogance. She had to admire him for stepping up to save the pageant. He was also, even though she didn't put much store in these things, stunning to look at. But on the other hand, he was definitely not her type, if she had a type, which she did not. And so it all came together. Everyone said that Lucas had the kind of speaking voice you usually heard in trailers for major motion pictures. He seemed to understand how the Christmas story went, even though he'd only just been given the script. He knew what scenes came next and where to direct the focus. And if people were being honest, Magnus Van Fleet had held on to the role too long, like a dog with an old bone, and it had become worn and worried. His attitude toward the pageant had lately brought to Father Bannon's mind a line by Trollope, that arrogance of thought, unsustained by first-rate abilities. Lucas's interpretation of John the Baptist was fresher and truer than Magnus's had been for years. In short, Marcy told the rector a few days later, after she'd walked through the whole role with Lucas, he's a fucking godsend. Language, Marcy, Bannon said, marveling at her ability to combine the profane and the sacred in a single two-word phrase. Marcy's enthusiasm and love of life were gloriously unchecked, as was her speech. Before entering the ministry, she'd been in the Navy. 
The pageant at St. Ninian's was the church's zenith of history and pride. Over the decades, the church had assembled just the right combinations of sets, costumes, props, and lighting effects. The ambience was deep yellow for the Annunciation, friendly green for the shepherds watching their flocks, and cool blue for the manger scene, which warmed slowly to a brilliant white as the stable filled up with adorers, pastoral and royal. And on the night of the pageant, when the lights dimmed and the first notes of Once in Royal David City began, the members of the congregation collectively remembered why they had left their warm homes and TVs, bundled up to face the snow-covered streets, and packed themselves and their children into pews that would distress gluteal muscles for days to come. It was a magical evening. The favorite part of the performance was always the entrance of the shepherds and the subsequent adoration of the Magi before the Christ child. Most of the people in the congregation had children who were shepherds, and this was what they'd come to see. Wrapped in towels and blankets that had been provided by their mothers and safety-pinned together by volunteers, the shepherds waited all evening in the church basement for their cue. A few of the more mature ones, the ones the chaperones knew would not start a ninja fight, were holding crooks. One year there had been an actual lamb, but this had ended badly. The musical number that heralded their scene was a recitative from Handel's Messiah that began with the words, And there were shepherds, sung by soprano Cheryl Blandford. The words described the appearance of the angels to the shepherds as they lay in the fields watching their sheep. This selection ended with the words, Praising God and saying... In fact, when Cheryl sang the words, and saying, on a note that was somewhere near a high A, she distorted the vowel so that the phrase sounded like praising God and sowing to many people. Some of the children wondered why the angels would be sowing right at that particular time, and if you would go through adulthood believing these were the actual words. The text supplied by Handel was to be followed immediately by the chorus, Glory to God in the Highest, to finish the sentence St. Luke had written. Sadly, that chorus was a bit too ambitious for the St. Ninian's choir, so instead the soprano line segued into the congregational hymn, Angels We Have Heard on High. It wasn't grammatically logical, but it gave everybody a chance to get on their feet for a few minutes and stretch their legs, as well as aim their phones to catch better shots of the scene. A few people wondered at what point in Cheryl Blanford's life someone had told her that her singing voice was attractive. In reality, it was hard to find anyone who didn't think she sounded like a worn drive belt on a washing machine, although admittedly the notes themselves were always correct. It was for this last reason that she survived. Singing the right notes at the right time was not universal in the choir, and the ability to do it outweighed any dodgy vocal quality. This year it was looking as if Lucas's narration was inspiring her to greater passion in her solo, which was not a thing anyone necessarily wanted. Whatever sounds came from Cheryl or the choir, the tableau of the assembled animals, shepherds, and angels on high gathered around the manger was the perfect way to set the scene for the climax of the pageant, which of course was the entrance of the three kings. A spotlight picked out the silver star that hung over the stable as the kings processed toward it. They'd been chosen for their height and kingly bearing, and as they moved with proper regal slowness down the aisle, the mouths of the little shepherds hung open in silent awe. Star of wonder, star of night, sang the crowd. The royal robes were studded with jewels, which sparkled like frozen fire in the brilliant light. 
After We Three Kings, there was a rendition of Elmer Eisler's touchingly simple arrangement of Away in a Manger, followed by Silent Night. Lucas Darnell, as John the Baptist, then sent them on their spiritual way with the stunning prose from St. John. In the beginning was the word. As Ashley Buff played Healy Willen's stirring incidental music to the Chester Mysteries. Eyes teared up and throats constricted, and some people right then and there inwardly renewed their vow to attend church more often in the coming year. At last, O come all ye faithful, swept up everyone in a sea of rich, close harmony and descant, creating as much noise as was ever heard in St. Ninian's church. Lindsay Sterling later plagiarized a phrase from Virginia Woolf to describe it in his Thornside News write-up. The organ complained magnificently. The long history of the St. Ninian's pageant told of the work, cooperation, and even drama that went into every presentation. But not everything was recorded. The full conversation between Lucas Darnell and Magnus Van Fleet that had occurred just before the previous Sunday's run-through might have raised eyebrows if anyone had overheard it. "'Great job you're doing,' Lucas said. "'But it must be hard to do your best when you know they don't appreciate your talent.' He'd come up to Magnus, who was visibly stewing about some dramatic note Marcy Cates had given him, and clapped a fraternal hand on his shoulder. "'They're so lucky to have you, and I'll bet none of them knows it.' "'You're right,' agreed Magnus. "'I've been doing John the Baptist for years. I'm the star of the whole goddamn Christmas story. Who is she to tell me I'm speaking my lines too quickly? I'll speak any goddamn way I want about the coming of the goddamn Messiah.' She's bossing you around when you should be the one calling the shots, Lucas said. You shouldn't stand for that sort of disrespect. It would serve them right if you walked out now. Where would they ever find another John the Baptist at this late date? Marcy would have to come crawling back to you and beg you to return. Think about it. Magnus Van Fleet thought about it, and another secret page of lore was added to pageant history. I hope you enjoyed this chapter of Thornside Stories, A Mix of Sun and Cloud, written and narrated by me, Christopher Cameron. I'll have another chapter for you next week. Music